1: Taking a mood that I make, I give it everything I got, cause that what it takes. I push the limit till it break, the heart of the brave, the soul of a legend with the will to be great. Hold
0: up. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the latest edition of No Mercy with yours truly, Stephen A. Smith, coming at you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, as I love to do. Let me get right into it because I'm not going to waste much time, ladies and gentlemen. I've always been a curious person, one who asks questions when I don't understand something. I'm just inquisitive like that. It's a quality that has served me well personally and professionally. So when anti-Semitic controversies began to swirl around Kanye West and Kyrie Irving over the last few weeks, and then of course Dave Chappelle's monologue on Saturday Night Live sparked backlash and a tweet from the head of the Anti-Defamations League's Jonathan Greenblatt, I had questions, a whole bunch of them. I knew I wanted to have a conversation with that man. I'm talking about Mr. Greenblatt. You might be saying, why, Stephen A., why do you want to do that? What good is that going to do? Well, my response is, I hope, a hell of a lot. Because whether you know it or not, there's a long history of Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement. A long history. In fact, I think a gentleman by the name of Rabbi Israel Sy Dresner one of the earliest freedom riders in the 1960s, who was close to Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., just died this year at the age of 92. Did y'all know that? I didn't. It's been noted that Rabbi Dresner was arrested four times in the early '60s during this time he spent as a freedom rider. He would leave his home in northern, North, in northern New Jersey, sometimes driving all night just to join a nonviolent protest in the segregated South. The only way to understand other races and cultures. Is by actually having a conversation as far as I'm concerned. That is what this podcast is supposed to be about, isn't it? Courageous conversations. And not just about understanding the Jewish culture, but to also enlighten other cultures about Black people too. It's easy to condemn one another. It really is easy. But like Dave Chappelle said in his opening monologue on Saturday Night Live, it really shouldn't be this scary to talk to each other about anything. It really shouldn't. How do we take a step in that direction by actually having a conversation? And that's why I'm honored to have my next guest right now. He is the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to No Mercy, the one and only Jonathan Greenblatt.
1: This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who to stop me high? Who gon' stop me high?
0: Welcome back to No Mercy, everybody. With yours truly, Stephen A. Smith. It's my honor and privilege to have my next guest. He is the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. And one of the things that I wanted to read, because it's straight off their website. I thought it's important to start off this interview by reading this. The Anti-Defamation League is the leading anti-hate organization in the world. Founded in 1913, its timeless mission is to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. Today, the Anti-Defamation League continues to fight all forms of anti-Semitism and bias, using innovation and partnerships to drive impact, a global leader in combating anti-Semitism, countering extremism, and battling bigotry wherever and whenever it happens. The Anti-Defamation League works to protect democracy and ensure a just and inclusive society for all. I thought my next guest would appreciate that introduction. Again, he's leading the fight. He's the leader, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Mr. Jonathan Greenblatt. Welcome to No Mercy with Stephen A. How are you, sir?
2: Good, so nice to be here. I'm such a fan. So uh it's really kind of a treat to be on with you, Stephen A. Smith. I'm not going to talk not going to talk baseball. I'm not going to talk about the Yankees. Okay, you don't have
0: a... to... I appreciate that. Thank you very much, because I'm very upset with them, Jonathan. We don't need to talk I'm... about the Yankees.
2: I'm going to tell you, I'm I'm wondering to see what Aaron Judge is going to do in the next couple months. That's what everybody's asking about. You know,
0: everybody keeps asking about that for me, Jonathan, just as an aside, with because you're not here to talk sports today. But I got to tell you, since you brought it up, everybody's making a big deal. I know he's a stud. I know he's big time. But they need pitching. They need pitching, okay? I need star pitching. That's what I need more so than the bats because the bats don't show up when star pitching is against them on far too many true. occasions in the postseason. True. But listen, I, I, I'm glad and I, I'm, I'm so appreciative that you're here with me today because this is a discussion, but I'd classify it as an education more so than anything else because I wanted somebody from the Anti-Defamation League, you specifically, to educate folks about the kind of things that you're talking about, the kind of things that you've had to discuss and be involved with over the last several weeks in terms of us, Dave Chappelle, Kanye West, Kyrie Irving. And I just wanted to get into all of that. So, first things first, describe to us when you talk about anti Semitism and the kind of issues that involve anti Semitism in this day and age. Express to us what your primary concern is in your own words. Well,
2: okay, so before I jump into that, let me just set the context, okay, Okay. Stephen A. So um, at ADL, as you said, you were kind to read our mission statement. We're the oldest anti-hate organization in America. We've been focusing on fighting anti-Semitism, racism, all forms of bigotry for almost 110 years. And we do it three ways. Number one, we work to protect communities Number two, we advocate. And number three, we educate. So, first, we work to protect communities. We literally track anti-Semitism and other forms of hate crimes. What I mean, we do that and we track the extremists. We have a uh, about a two, two and a half dozen analysts. who are tracking right wing extremists, left wing radicals, religious zealots, offline and online. And last year we tracked 9,664 reported acts of hate. Mm -hmm. And we were able to focus on the fact that 2,717 were anti-Jewish in nature. When I say we focused on that, I have 420 full-time employees spread across 25 offices who investigate every report that comes in. We talk to victims, we talk to police, we talk to the community. And so last year, we've been doing this work for 45 years or so, last year was the highest total of anti-Jewish incidents we've ever seen. And it was a 34% increase over 2020. It's triple the number of incidents, Stephen, that we had in 2015. And I'm talking about anti-Semitic acts of uh, harassment, vandalism, and violence. So the police just track vandalism and violence. We also at ADL look at bullying, discrimination, harassment, things that might not get the attention of the law enforcement, but we track it. So I gonna just lay it out there that last year was literally just in terms of actual incidents, things happening on the ground in Brooklyn, in Berkeley, all over the country, the worst we've seen in four and a half decades. So, and then we don't just track it, we investigate, like I said, last year we gave over 1,300 tips to the police Right-wing extremists, white supremacists, armed militia types were able to identify them and intercept crimes before they happen.
0: Now when so you that's say lot, you, mm-hmm. when you say you track, when you say it's tripled over the last year, what do you attribute that to? The tripling of of the anti-Semitism that you just alluded to in in 2021. I what do you attribute it to?
2: The tripling's over six years. I think over number six one, six years. It went up 34 percent last year. I think number one. Um, you know, anti-Semitism needs to be understood as a conspiracy theory, right? This idea that Jews have too much control, are keeping people down, are greedy. It's it's persisted throughout literally centuries across continents and cultures. Stephen, sometimes the Jews are too rich, sometimes they're too poor. Sometimes they're communists, sometimes they're capitalists. But it's the ability to blame the Jews on whatever the problem is. So, number one, why has it gone up? Because we're living in an age of conspiracy theories. And Donald Trump kind of took the genie out of the bottle in 2016, talking about globalists, blaming Muslims and blacks, and creating the environment which right-wing extremists were literally brought into the public conversation. And I think the country is so polarized today. Conspiracies are the coin of the realm today. That's got a lot to do with it. So, number one, we're living in a polarized society where conspiracies are abundant. Number two, look, extremists feel emboldened. After Kanye says what he does, they go on the L.A. freeway on the 405 and hang a sign over and says, Kanye was right about the Jews. And then at the, FS, at the Florida-Georgia game a week later, they put up a laser point and say, Kanye was right about the Jews. But they're not just like putting signs up, although they are doing that. But like Stephen, they're running for office. They're showing up at library board meetings. The extremists feel emboldened in this environment. That's got a lot to do with it. And then finally, uh, I think social media. Social media has just whipped the whole country up into a frenzy. And the reality is that the social media companies, they're not, you know, they're not responsible. And look, I'm someone who is optimistic about uh, Elon Musk taking over Twitter. And yet we've watched the anti-Semitic incidents spike since he came. And less than half of them are now getting taken down than we had before. So the numbers are going up. We're the number one organization tracking it. That's a worry, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, we do advocacy. We try to change laws in the courts or in Congress. We're trying to bankrupt the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers right now. We're doing, you know, amicus briefs at the Supreme Court, and we advocate in the court of public opinion. So I speak out, whether it's Tucker Carlson or Marjorie Taylor Greene or in, you know Kanye, which we'll talk about, or or Trump or uh, um, Kyrie or whomever. We we speak out and we call people out. And then thirdly, we educate and Stephen, this is the most important point. Like the only way you can beat hate ultimately is by changing hearts and minds. So ADL is one of the largest providers in America of anti-hate content in schools. Last year, we reached maybe four and a half million school children in school, Mm -hmm. not on TikTok, not on Twitter, but in classrooms where they're ready to learn. Mm -hmm. And ultimately I think. So I don't believe in cancel culture. I believe in council culture. We Mm got to bring people in. That's how we win. And this is what I think ultimately is our mission. It's like to fight hate, not just with a closed fist, but with an open hand. Not just by calling people out, but by bringing them in. That's that's what we need to do. Well, that's an incredible
0: explanation. And I have no problem with it whatsoever. That's why I wanted to have you on, because I think it's important that the audience hears things like this. But but indulge me for a second here and we'll go down the list because I'm going to go to Dave Chappelle first. And here's the reason why you brought up the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. You brought up former President Donald Trump. You brought up elected officials with some of the positions that they've taken that that one could argue has contributed to some degree to fomenting the level of hate and and, and cynicism that uh, that has really permeated our our society in a negative fashion, okay? You brought all of those things up. And then we get to a comedian. And there are a lot of people, Jonathan Greenblatt, that would say, there's a difference here. And I want you to explain that because when I watched Dave Chappelle, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm very, very sensitive from this perspective. I am not Jewish. As far as I'm concerned, when somebody talks about anti-Semitism, if you are a member of the Jewish community, you have an inside, you, you have an inside understanding on that, that I may not know. And so to me, as long as if you're offended, that's enough for me. It's enough yeah. for me. And I and I get all of that. But in the same breath, when I think about comedians like a Dave Chappelle doing an opening monologue on Saturday Night Live, and nobody is safe. Nobody is safe. Black folks get called out, white folks get called out, Jewish folks get called out, et cetera, et cetera. This was your quote. We shouldn't expect Dave Chappelle to serve as society's moral compass, but it's disturbing to see NBC, SNL, not just normalize, but popularize anti Semitism. This is what you wrote. And I yeah. guess some people are asking, especially when you illuminate and highlight the facts that you threw out just earlier. Yeah. how does a comedian get lumped in there when he's there to make people laugh just telling jokes explain so that. let's
2: talk let's talk about that and it's a good question and I just want to start by appreciating what you said a moment ago about like when a Jewish person gets offended that's enough for you right yeah. or at least when and like I, I feel the same way like anti-Semitism just like I don't think anti-black racism is just your problem as a black man it's my problem as a white man Okay. Just like anti-Semitism, is just my problem as a Jewish person, it's your problem as a non jewish person. These are all American problems that people use to try to tear at our fabric of our society. Mm-hmm. And I really liked, I'll just tell you what my friend, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, who you might know. Yes, yes. Was he, was really the, a, he was on the a
0: week ago. Yeah.
2: Oh, sorry. <laughs> so he had this great line in his, he has a piece in the New York Times today. And he says, you know, African-Americans and Jews are passengers on the same ship facing the ferocious headwinds of bigotry and hatred. And I love that because the reality is that our communities have so much in common, so much in common. But with that said, we're just living in this moment right now. So let's mm-hmm. talk about Dave Chappelle. I let's usually give a, I give a very wide berth to comedy. I think satire is different than statements. We got to acknowledge that comedians often again they uh, will take shots at all kinds of people and their humor is very much derived from that hmm and and I want to be clear I don't believe that Dave Chappelle is an anti-Semite and I don't believe that he meant to do harm with his comments Necessarily. I mean again, I'm very look. He is a genius. He's a comic genius. Yes he And is. I get his style and I know he pushes the envelope um, But I think there are times when jokes kind of cross a line into offensiveness And my friend, Yair Rosenberg, who writes for The Atlantic, he said about it, quote, it's not clear whether the bit is setting up a punchline or is just a punch. And whether Dave intentionally intended it or not, it very much felt like a punch. Because he minimized, like in a very obvious way, in a very intentional way, Kanye West, or Ye, his anti-Semitism by claiming that the problem, right off the bat, Stephen, he said, the problem wasn't what Ye said. The problem was that he said it out loud. Okay, That's literally what he said. And that's dangerous and very problematic. Perhaps, you know, if it was a single punchline, then we would have let it go. But it was the overarching theme of the whole 15-minute monologue. And he punctuated that segment by referring... To this hypothetical, they, right? He said they might cancel him, whoever they might be, really setting it up as if the Jews, that this is what we do. And, you know, when I say that it was popularizing anti Semitism, look, I've got people on the far right, like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Tucker or others, talking about globalists or Jewish space lasers. George Soros saying these Jews want a great replacement theory, and then I have folks on the far left talking again about like the Zionist state of Israel committing genocide, and making other crazy claims. Okay, and so you see anti-Semitism normalized, but if in the popular com- in the public conversation, Stephen, but what I said, what I did was because for me it goes from being normalized to popularized when we're a punchline when our pain is a punchline, when our trauma triggers laughs and no contrition at all. Now, if Dave Chappelle had used the same monologue in the rehearsal and Lorne Michaels had said, that's okay, I might've felt differently. But I think as you probably know and has been reported, he didn't, he used a different monologue in the rehearsal because he knew this was going to be explosive. And this idea of Jewish Jewish people having a high degree of anxiety, Stephen, That is not some abstraction. I spent much of the day yesterday, as did my staff, on the phone with the NYPD, Mm. because two men were reportedly coming to Penn Station with weapons to shoot up a synagogue or a Jewish institution. How do we know that? Number one, because the FBI called us and said, we're on alert. This is happening. We need your help because the ADL is monitoring the extremists. And then sure enough, yesterday afternoon, the FBI announced, or the NYPD announced, that they had arrested two individuals with weapons who came into the city to commit an attack. So, and this idea that like, well, Jews have power, that's a compliment. It's a compliment, they wanna be just like the Jews. That sounds great until you remember earlier this year, when in Colleyville, Texas, a man broke into a synagogue, took four people hostage because he thought, quote, Jews control the world. And he wanted the Jews to get President Biden on the phone and to uh, release uh, a ter- person who had been arrested for terrorism.
0: Yeah, yeah, but, but Jonathan, we live in a society, excuse me for pushing back, because I'm not disagreeing. I'm pushing back, but not in disagreement. What I'm trying okay. to say is this, you know, there are crazy people. There are people that are just nuts. And there are people that are just looking for any excuse to commit violence, spew hate, and do the kind of heinous, insidious things that they want to do. And it's just, and anything is just an excuse to do what they really wanted to do in their heart anyway. And Mm -hmm. I guess I'm asking, I mean, can it just be that? Because when I think about, for example, when we bring up Dave Chappelle, I'm thinking about, Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. Here was his quote. I did think the comedy was well executed, but I think the subject matter calls for conversation. That was him. This is Jon Stewart on Chappelle when he was talking to the great Stephen Gobert. Stephen Gobert is absolutely sensational doing late night television and they've been friends for years. This is what John, Lew- John Stewart said. Everybody calls me like you see Dave on S- on SNL. And I say, yes, we're very good friends. I always watch and send nice texts. He normalized anti-Semitism with the monologue. I don't know if you've been on comment sections on most articles, but it's pretty normal. It's incredibly normal. But the one thing I will say is I don't believe that censorship and penalties are the way to end anti-Semitism or to gain understanding. I don't believe in that. It's the wrong way for us to approach it. Well, when like, you hear I, that- When I you hear
2: think? that, I, I think to myself, well, oh boy, Jon Stewart, how can, it's amazing how you can be so right- and so wrong at the very same time. Okay, I really explain, do explain. so like I like just because there's a lot of anti-Semitism on the comment section of YouTube videos, or like homophobia in the comment section of I don't know uh, Facebook doesn't make that normal or okay at all. And the reality is is that I'm sure that Jerry Seinfeld and John Stewart have deep relationship with Dave Chappelle which might impact the way that they speak about him in, in public, to be perfectly mm-hmm. frank. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, is that nobody said that Dave Chappelle should be canceled. Nobody said that Dave That's Chappelle fair. should be censored. That's fair. But what we are saying is Dave Chappelle should be sensitive in this moment in time. A bit that the whole point of which seems to be to say, you know, he did that perfunctory thing or that performative thing, Stephen, where he folded up and he read a note it's like, that's how you buy some time. And then he goes on a tirade to talk about the fact that they control things, you know? And it's okay, to, it's OK to think it. It's just not OK to say it. Like, I don't need to be educated. We need to educate people about the evils of anti-Semitism and, again, anti-Black racism and anti-AAPI hate and explain what's at the roots of some of these stereotypes. We should do that. But that isn't like a conversation as if these things were legitimate. It's an education about why they're wrong. I just, you know, that's my problem. And when Jon Stewart, he's he sort of self-identified in that interview with, with Colbert as the spokes Jew. Uh, he's not. Nobody elected him. Nobody asked him. And he may be getting calls from his friend, Stephen, like, Other people are getting calls from their friends. I mean, just because he has the privilege of going on the Colbert show doesn't deign him an expert on this at all.
0: That's fair, Jonathan. But let me push back by asking you this question. I totally respect where you're coming from. But one would ask when listening to Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti Defamation League Is that how you feel? Or is that how the Jewish community feels? Because I have to tell you, in the last week, I ran across numerous friends. In the Jewish community who had no problem at all with what Dave Chappelle did on the opening monologue. They said it was funny. He made me laugh, just like it was funny to some of the things he said about Kanye West when he talked about Kanye West having a problem, you know, and 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 obviously alluding to Kyrie Irving having the same issue, et cetera, et cetera. No one's safe. We understand what platform it's in. It's not like it was a politician. You worked under the Clinton administration. You worked under the Obama administration. You're very entrenched in the political and stratosphere of things. You know what I'm talking about here. It's not like it's one of them that went well. up and did
2: this. Here's, but you got to keep, again, I think satire is different than like a comedian satire, is than a politician's statement, for sure, okay. no question. Okay. okay. But let's not, let's keep two things in mind. Number one, yeah, there's a lot of differences of opinions in the Jewish community about what is anti Semitic or not, just like probably in the black community. And what, yes. like I'm sure there are black folks who thought the ridiculous things Kanye said about slavery yes. were okay. I mean, or weren't a problem. And I think yeah. there were a lot of people who thought they were Multiple really Most of us were highly
0: offensive. Most of us yeah. were highly offended by that stupidity. Right. Yes.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was pretty disgusting. Uh, but I got to tell you, fortunately or not, like, it's not my job to be a historian of comedy, but it is my job to be kind of a historian of sorts on anti-Semitism. Mm. I mean, this is, our organizations have been working on this a lot longer than mm, I think anybody in America is alive. So- the reality is, is again, John Stewart looks at this through the prism of, through the narrow aperture of his comedy and his life experience. And at the ADL, we look at this through, again, a, we're a data-driven organization, Stephen. So, and I could tell you, we've been take, doing attitudinal surveys since the 1960s, mm. studying incidents since the 1970s. I mean, this is what we do. So we're bringing a pedigree of expertise that's just different than the man on the street. Now, all that being said, I also don't want to discount the power of platforms. I mean, we know today in a world in which social media has reshaped how we consume information that, yes, Joe Biden uh, is the president of the United States, and yes, other elected officials have big bully pulpits. But, you know, for example, uh Kanye West had 40 million, 41 million followers
0: on Twitter. I actually, Kanye West- had and that combined people. with Instagram, I think he had 49.4 million followers. Okay. So we'll call it 50 million even. Okay. And like, that's
2: a bigger audience than any primetime show in America. How many people watch the Super Bowl? Like,
0: do you do you know those numbers? I don't off the top of my head, yes. but- yeah, it, 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 you know, It's over 50 million, but I mean, it's over 50 million on a few occasions, yes. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So,
2: or like, you know, again, even Chappelle has a kind of- In a world in which our millennials, our Generation Z, are listening to influencers as much or more so than electeds, because they're cynical about elected officials, we just shouldn't discount the power of those platforms. I don't think we
0: can afford to. One of the other things that Jon Stewart, before I get on to the next subject, one of the other things Jon Stewart said that I wanted your response to, he talked about in regards to Kanye West. He said something Kanye West said on his tour, he got interviewed by five different people because the media model is arson and conflict. Hurt people hurt people. I'm afraid that the general tenor of conversation that this country has is cover it up, bury it, put it to the outskirts and don't deal with it. Look at it from a black perspective. It's a culture that feels that its wealth has been extracted by different groups. That's the feeling in that community. And if you don't understand where it's coming from, then you can't deal with it. That's what he said about Kanye West. Wasn't defending it, but he was rationalizing where he was coming from when he said what he said. What do you have to say to that?
2: Look, in my job, I travel the country. I talk to people coast to coast, big cities, small towns. And I and I definitely have people say to me that they feel legitima- legitimately afraid of immigrants who are stealing their jobs, or legitimately afraid of Chinese people who are spreading the Wuhan flu. And it's, it's valid. This COVID is spreading and it came from China and they feel truly, they feel truly, sincerely that their their apprehension and their aversion toward Asian American people is rational in that context. Um, it isn't. And so when we say hurt people, hurt people, like I, I don't think that my trauma as the grandson of a Holocaust survivor legitimizes, you know, and legitimizes me expressing bigotry toward another community. I just don't, I don't buy that. I think that's what... You know George Bush called the bigotry of low, the soft bigotry of low expectations. I think we should expect more from one another if we're all committed to this place called America, to this multiracial, multi-faith, multicultural democratic experiment. We can treat each other with a modicum of respect, and my hurt or your hurt isn't an excuse to hurt other people.
0: Now- what about ignorance? What about ignorance? What about the the, the potential reality that you simply didn't know? that this would be so offensive to the Jewish community. And then you later discovered it from Jonathan Greenblatt and others that it was offensive. And so that made you, that gave you cause to pause and obviously to reflect on things. What about that, Jonathan?
2: Entirely, entirely plausible and fair, which is why, again, we ultimately believe that education is the crucial element in fighting, hey, look, man, you can't do it. We'll never have real safety. Mm-hmm. If all we have is security, we need security and solidarity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we got to protect the synagogue before two people attack it. Mm-hmm. You know, coming out of Penn Station with with semi-automatic weapons. But we also need solidarity, and solidarity means being with other communities and understanding one another. Mm-hmm. And education's got to be mutual. It's not just me telling you; it's me listening to you. And all of us, I think, Stephen, expressing a degree of um, grace. And a, and a measure of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Because I just think we need to embrace one another, not reject one another. Now, that, that's not gonna stop me from calling it out. Mm-hmm. They, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. right? I'm not gonna go easy, oh, he's just, he just didn't know better. Right. But like again, I've built great relationships with people like, like Nick Cannon, mm-hmm. or um, Myers Leonard, or any number of
0: other individuals Think about we, what happened with Whoopi found Goldberg ourselves, Who found themselves in dicey situations because of things that they said about the Jewish community.
2: Yeah, and then guess what? So I may call them out, but then we, like, Nick's a close friend. Mm-hmm. Or I think about what happened with Whoopi Goldberg earlier this year when she made some comments about the Holocaust. Like, yeah, I called it out, but then we worked together, and I did her show, and we talked about it. And that education that it enabled, Stephen, like an
0: open... An open constructive conversation, that's the only way we move forward. Well, listen, compassion comes into play, and that was something that I was on the air talking about the other day. And the reason why is because a lot of times where the open discussions and you know sort of sort of just the mending offenses per se or just 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 quelling the negative momentum comes into play after punishment is extracted. And mm. for me, and for me, it's like, well. When is punishment warranted? I mean, when you're insensitive, when you're uncaring, yes. But if you made an honest mistake, no. I remember I was on Cuomo's show, Chris Cuomo's show on News Nation, just mm-hmm. this past Monday, Jonathan. And mm-hmm. I said to him, he started explaining how, look at the history, because he had a problem with what Kanye said. And he said, yeah. look at how Jewish the Jewish community ended up in Hollywood. You got to tell that story. And then he told the story. And I said to him, Chris, I'm 55 years old. I never knew that. I had no clue. So lo-, lo and behold, had I said something similar to what Dave Chappelle said when he said, there's a lot of Jewish folks in Hollywood, I like a lot, and, and we all laughed. I had no idea it was problematic. What about that from Jonathan Greenblatt and the Anti-Defamation League? What about that level of ignorance that some people just might not know because they don't, you know, everywhere you look, you see people that don't know their own history. Sure. So it's highly totally conceivable that they may not know yours.
2: hundred percent. And again, that's why I think we've got it. compassion and grace
0: mm-hmm.
2: are critical to this process. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is, is we live in a country where young people don't know who the vice president is. Right. Yep. Don't know how many amendments there are to our constitution and so on and so forth. Yeah. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of ignorance, but the only way we bridge that, we bridge that ignorance by embracing not ejecting people and by working with them, not against them. So take Kyrie Irving, for example, like- That's where I'm going next, go ahead. So like, just to be clear, we didn't set the terms for Kyrie coming back to the NBA. We had nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. I was asked if I would meet with them. I said, of course, yes. And I've spoken to members of his family. I've spoken to the, you know, the ownership and the management of the nets. I have spoken to the front office of the NBA. I've spoken to the front office of Players Association. I've spoken to Kyrie's friends. Like the goal here is to be, is to educate people and be helpful. I think it's so important not to, we never said he should play or not play. We said we had a problem with this film because again, he has a platform, mm-hmm. intentional or not. And when he validates it, it's challenge, it's a bit of a challenge. And then when he pushed back, when people tried to educate him, his initial reaction was pushback. And that we also thought was, you know, really problematic. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like when Adam Silver says, I met with him and I've never heard him express an anti-Semitic sentiment. When Joe Tsai says, I met with him and I've never heard. When his friends tell me, I've met with him and I've never heard. When he says, I'm sorry, I got to do better. Like, that's enough for me. Like, because again, I just don't think our goal here is to ostracize or alienate people. Mm -hmm. It's to educate
1: them. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock sticking like my lifeline until i line, i push it to the red line who gonna stop me high who gonna stop me high
0: educate us about exactly what your problem because everybody hasn't seen the film uh everybody hasn't heard from the anti-defamation league as it pertains to specifics about what your problem with the film was for the purposes of our audience can you tell us what specifically sure. was your problem with the film? What, what what the film entailed? What are you challenging in that film? Because I yeah, haven't seen no film, film out there.
2: Go ahead. Yeah, Don't waste your time. It's not exactly going to be at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, look, the movie says things, for example, like um, uh, white Jews stole the identity of black Jews, that white Jews invented the Holocaust. It didn't really happen. The movie quotes liberally from Adolf Hitler. The movie quotes from Henry Ford, who was also a notorious anti-Semite. Uh, the movie basically tries to make the case that the Jews have invented our genocide in order to keep down black people and, you know, and uh, exploit the world. I mean, this is I mean, I think what you got to understand, Stephen, is this is like right out of the white supremacist playbook. Mm. This is literally what right out of like a KKK, yeah. you know, um like a primer Mm. and here's the rub of this when our two communities and by the way there's a lot of there's overlap like there are plenty of jews of color black people who are bi-rate who are in interfaith relationships or you know jewish i mean so we're not just separate communities we are a multiracial community you're a multi-faith community i just want to say that up front but the african-american and american jewish communities have so much in common years a hundred years ago before it was fashionable we were fighting together for civil rights in this country because there were laws that prevented blacks and jews from buying homes in certain areas or joining certain country clubs or you know work you know attending certain universities and like before it was fashionable before we had terms like intersectionality or social justice blacks and jews were marching together in the south they were registering voters Um, you know, in rural Mississippi, in rural Alabama to vote. They were working together arm in arm, hand in hand. And we've got to get back to that shared history. So a movie like this, which, you know, bizarrely like repeats white supremacist propaganda that the Jews are trying to keep down, in this case, black people, feeds into the interests of those who want to separate our communities. We've got a rich shared history We have so much in common. I think working together, hand in hand again, is the way we need to look
0: So when you saw Kyrie Irving uh, express reluctance with his apology, I think that's a kind way of putting it. One of the things that caught my attention was when he was asked whether or not he was an anti-Semite. And his words were, "You you know, if you know who I am, you know I can't be. And it hearkened me back to what, Malcolm X had once said back, into the, back in the 60s, he talked about you know the African nations and the Arab nations, and he talked about how black folks were original Jewish folks. So to be anti-Semite would be to be against yourself, and that's not something that he is, nor does he believe any black person could be. That's what I peel from what Kyrie Irving meant when he said that, because if you see Israelites and, and and people who are familiar with Israelites in the community, in the streets, rather, they'll tell they'll tell you that's where that belief emanates from. To that you say what, Jonathan Greenblatt?
2: Look, like I'm not going to question anyone's religious beliefs. I don't think that's for me to do. Okay. Uh, but what I will say is that if your religion is based on denying or dismissing an entire another group of people, that's kind of problematic. Yeah. it is. So as I said before, there are, I know Black Hebrew Israelites. Uh, who identify as Jewish, and I think that's great. Uh, And I don't have a problem with that. Like, my Judaism isn't an exclusionary one, Stephen, which says I've got it all figured out, far from it. Like, I know that I gotta walk humbly, and I know that I need to accept the fact that, you know, we're all in this together. But this, like, parsing of words, well, how can I be anti-Semitic if I'm Semitic? Like, give me a break. I think anti-Semite isn't a technical scientific term. It isn't. The term anti-Semite is not one that the Jews invented. It was foisted upon the Jews in the 1800s in Europe Mm -hmm. by an Austrian racist. Um, So Semitic, anti-Semitic, it's Jew hatred is what it is. Mm -hmm. And so when we focus on, well, how can I be anti-Semitic if I'm really Semitic? I've heard other people from the Nation of Islam use a similar line. Mm -hmm. And the reality is is that Again, it's not for me to tell a black person what's racist, and it's really not for a non Jewish person to tell me what's anti Semitic or not. It just isn't.
0: Right. You know, I-, I wanted to go back to something Dave Chappelle said when he alluded to the J- J- Jewish folks in Hollywood, because I wanted to confess to you what I also said to Chris Cuomo on his show this past week. Yeah. I remember uh, about two or three years ago, a colleague of mine at ESPN, I talked about the Jewish community being together. And as a black person, I literally alluded to a level of potential envy that we may have because one of the things as a black man we lament on continuous occasions is the fact that we need to be more together than we are. So to me, it was a compliment until my colleague educated me about why it was considered offensive to a lot of Jewish folks because of this belief that we stick together no matter what, and it's us against the rest of the world. And I had never looked at it that way until he told me. Thank God right. he told me, because if I had right. run across somebody that felt right. the same way he did, but a little, but literally absorbed it as an insult immediately, who knows what would have happened? And that's what I'm talking about. So when I heard Dave Chappelle say what he said, I was like, okay, he said it, he's a comedian, it was funny. What's the big deal? And then I remembered that.
2: Yeah, I mean, some of this is really hard, Stephen, yeah. and a lot of this is context. Yeah. So when 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 you or another person from outside the Jewish community says, boy, the Jews, they really got their act together, that isn't necessarily a slur or a stereotype. Right. That can be an observation that comes from a place of admiration. But it's when, you know, some people say, oh, the Zionists, they got it all together. Like, that's very different. And so I think we need to have the ability to hold two truths at the same time in our minds and to treat every situation. It's not like they're all sui generis, but I think we've got to look at them all as, you know, on a case by case basis mm-hmm. and to evaluate, is there intent or not, mm-hmm. right? Is there ignorance or not? And I, I respond appropriately. Um, look, I don't think the way the ADL approaches these things at all is a hammer nail. Mm-hmm. Like the only thing we have is a hammer, something that looks like a nail. And I think all of us in life would be well-served to acknowledge that we need to adapt, we need to adjust, and we need to treat things again on a one-off basis.
0: You talked about the ham and the nail, and in fairness, there's a lot of people that believe, although you articulated that you had nothing to do with Kyrie's suspension, you know, or anything like that, uh, the reality of the situation is is that the Anti-Defamation League did make its feelings known, uh, obviously through you, as to how they felt about Kyrie Irving. I ask you this question. When you saw his reluctance to give his apology. What did you think should have happened to him? How did you feel more specifically about the five game suspension, which has now really been eight games, et cetera, et cetera? What are your thoughts about what has happened to Kyrie Irving in light of all of this?
2: Well, you know, we were in deep discussions with his family and his this whole camp, if you will, okay. before things unraveled, because the goal was to do spend time together.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He was going to make a contribution to ADL to invest in different organizations fighting hate, which we thought was great. Right. And then we're still going to, and I'm still intent, by the way, Stephen, on doing these community conversations with the Brooklyn Nets in Brooklyn with young Jewish people, young African-American, non-Jewish people, maybe like young Asian-American people from the neighborhood and get people together talking, because the only way, again, we move forward, I think, is with a degree of education and conversation and engagement is really important. Doesn't happen in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Like the black community, the Jewish community. I mean, when people are sitting in the stands, they're all cheering for the nets, but when they go home from Barclays, they're not engaging with one another, so we can do better. But all that being said, when he made some of his comments, they were really, let's just say, disappointing. That's kind of being generous because he didn't seem to have any sense of accountability. He didn't take any responsibility for what he did initially, which is why I said, look, we don't need his money. I don't want his money. It was never about the money. I don't need it. I don't want it. Let's focus on how we move forward. And so I, I've got to be frank, and I probably should have done this even to be honest. I don't know what the NBA did in similar situations in the past when players made homophobic comments or racist comments or misogynistic things. I just don't know. So I don't know how Kyrie's comments stack up. I think Josiah, the owner, was being very sincere with what he said in his own words. Mm-hmm. I think Josiah, the owner, was acknowledging the nature of the fan base in Brooklyn, which is both very black and very Jewish. Mm-hmm. You know, Brooklyn and New York City has the largest Jewish population of any city on the planet Earth, right? Mm-hmm. There are more Jewish people in New York than there are in Tel Aviv. Wow. I mean, it's just... So for that to happen there, I think, really hurt a lot of the people who show up every night, who buy tickets, who buy merch, who care about the team. And by the way, Steven, that includes my family. Like, my kids have Kyrie shoes. Mm. My middle son has a Kyrie, you know, jersey. Mm. So he's, he's not just an ordinary player. He's like a household name. I mean, he is just an extraordinary
0: athlete. Let me be specific. Do you think the endorsements should have been pulled from him and sneakers should have been yanked and things of that nature? Do you think that should happen? I was very surprised at that.
2: We didn't talk to Nike about it. Uh, I had no idea that was coming. I don't know what was really going on there. But I hope that Nike will take him at his word and I think acknowledge that he is showing accountability, that he has been sincere in his apology. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think this guy should be... Um, excommunicated at all Mm -hmm. i think you know you judge people not based on what they say but what they do what he's done since this happened has got wasn't good initially it's gotten better and better and better Mm -hmm. and i hope he'll really be a role model that he'll do these community conversations with us or with other organizations and that he'll continue to be the hero you know that so many of his fans again like my kids Mm -hmm. believe him to be
0: in fairness in fairness to him I want to read what he said during an interview on SNY on Saturday night. He says, quote, I'm not anti-Semitic. I never have been. I don't have hate in my heart for the Jewish people or anyone that identifies as a Jew. I'm not anti-Jewish or any of that and it's been difficult to sit at home with my family with them seeing all of this and having questions. The part that hasn't been hard is explaining myself because I know who I am, I know what I represent, but I think the difficult aspect is just processing all of this, understanding the power of my voice, the influence I have. I am no one's idol, but I am a human being that wants to make an impact and and change. In order to do that, I have to live responsibly and set a greater example for our youth, for my generation and the older generation. Jonathan Greenblatt, is that enough of an explanation for you? Absolutely. I think there's a sincerity to that and a genuine to us that I
2: really appreciate. We're all human. We all make mistakes. And we all try to live, you know, try to, you know. I mean, look, we're created in the image of God, but none of us are godlike. I mean, all of us are just mortal. We're just men and women trying to do our best. So, you know, in the Jewish community, we have a tradition called tshuva, it's, it means like a repentance, okay. And so again, we sin and we make mistakes. We need to acknowledge them and then try to do better. And I take him at his word. And so when he says that, I believe him. When Adam Silver and Joe Sigh and the people around him second that, I believe them. And look, I hope, Stephen, I'll have the opportunity to sit down with Kyrie at some point. I haven't yet. I hope I'll be able to talk to him about the Jewish community about that film and the myths in the film. And then I hope we'll be able to find ways to work together. I think that would be the best outcome of all.
0: You know, a lot of people brought this up. Kyrie Irving took a link to that film, put it on his Twitter page. But the film is on Amazon. What is the Anti-Defamation League doing as it pertains uh, pertains to Mr. Jeff Bezos? Well, so Jeff's the chairman. Andy Jassy's the
2: CEO and I can tell you, we have launched a campaign to get that film off of Amazon. Mm -hmm. So we've sent them, I'm going to guess it's some, somewhere in the ballpark of 10,000 or so emails at this point, pushing for them to drop the film. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we reached out to them right away when we saw this. Um, And look in the past when we, I mean, we're a first amendment organization. We fight for civil rights for all people. So we believe in the First Amendment. I will ferociously defend the First Amendment. But Amazon has an opportunity. Amazon has an opportunity to decide what films or books they stock on their shelves or don't. Barnes & Noble has an opportunity to decide. ESPN has an opportunity to decide what programs they schedule or don't. Right. You know, and so we think that it's not a free speech issue for Amazon to say, you know, this movie or this art is inconsistent with our values and to decide not to stock it. So we think it should come down, period, end of story. If they won't do that, and I'm pushing for that to happen, at a minimum, at a minimum, at a minimum, they should put a disclaimer on the movie, to say this is filled with toxic propaganda. Like, I'm sure you can, I, actually, I don't know, if you can find Birth of a Nation on Amazon. But if it's know. up there, it, it needs to be contextualized. You know Birth of a Nation, this yes, movie? Yes, I've heard, of course, I, of course I know. A, I'm saying. I just didn't know whether it was on, dis- okay. Contemptible film. And if it's going to, but it gets credits as one of the first motion pictures. If you're going to have it, it needs to be contextualized. So people know it's filled with, ugly racism and justifies Mm -hmm. this Confederate view of events, which is which is not just wrong, it's dangerous.
0: But you know, some, see, this is the thing though, Jonathan, when people look at somebody like yourself, they think about, again, if they do their homework on you and they know that you worked for the Clintons during the Clinton administration, that you worked for Barack Obama and the Obama administration, and how dogged and committed that you are to equality and fairness for all and decency and things of that nature and the kind of work that you do, the community service that you've been involved with. Here's where it can get frustrating. The Jewish community is a minority community, just like the black community is a minority community. And we see somebody like a Bezos, for example. And there are a lot of people that would ask, where's the momentum that was aimed in the direction of a Kyrie Irving or a Kanye West? Maybe not by the Anti-Defamation League, but, I, but by society as a whole. Yet Amazon gets to do big business as always. Or some of these, you know, you know, some of these film companies and what have you, these studios. People look at that, and that's why you have people that would jump, not necessarily to defend Kyrie or Kanye, because if you disagree with them, you disagree with them, and more than enough people have spoken out against what they did. But that level of momentum that is aimed in their direction to squash their quality of life because of the mistakes that they made, where somebody like Bezos and those guys can't be compromised at all. What do you say to that?
2: I mean, it's funny. I have two thoughts on that. So number one, I know it's interesting. And, I, and I'm very, I try to be very careful, Stephen, about what I say and when I speak up, because I know it generates attention. Yeah. So when I said what I did about Dave Chappelle, even though I tried to focus on Saturday Night Live, which gave him that platform, yeah. it got covered by Next Day by People, Magazine, and USA Today, and Hollywood Reporter, ADL attacks Chappelle. Okay. That wasn't what I intended to do, but I get it. And so- it's interesting because again, we put out a tweet when Kyrie did what he did, and then we worked out the statement. But the media loves to go after, you know, black celebrities, and the media often gives a pass to these billionaires. Mm. It's just true Now, last night, after after Elon Musk, who I've talked to, who I've engaged with, who I've tried to work with, announced that he was re he was adding Donald Trump back to the platform, yeah, I criticized him publicly. And I don't know. It's got you know, and he came after me. Uh, Elon Musk did. Yeah, publicly.
0: you, AOC, everybody, it's coming after his own employees, his own engineers. That's so right. Quit that's on. right. So I don't feel all that. Well, special. Gotta let go. Brother.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel all that special. I'm not all you. that unique. But but I just say like I will go after Elon Musk. I will go after Amazon. I will go after big business when we think they are. Fa- I mean, look at. I don't know if you're familiar with, but we organized the NAACP Color of Change, another civil rights group, and a whole campaign against Facebook. A few years ago and I've gone after Mark Zuckerberg publicly. Yeah. But it's fair to ask, where's the rest of, you know, the press? Where's the rest of where's the public outrage? I can't speak to that other than to say, um, we're not going to relent. We'll call up people on the right and the left. We'll call up people in business or politics or culture. Our job is to fight anti-Semitism and all forms of hate, not to pull our punches
0: and you know and i want to make sure that i ask you this question as well because i want to know if it's okay to to say this people need to be careful particularly in this day and age and with what Dave Chappelle did with his opening monologue and what have you and your reaction to that. I've had people telling me, like, look, at, look at Hollywood from this perspective. We look at an agency like Creative Artists Agency. You've got Chris Silberman, who is Jewish. We got Ari Emanuel. And in an interest of full disclosure, that's who represents me. You know, uh-huh. William, William Morris Endeavor. I happen to know Ari Emanuel very well. He's a friend. I happen to He's know President Mark Shapiro. He's a friend. I know, th- and I've known both of them for over over 20 years. So let's be clear about that. You've got that going on. I'm looking at the National Football League, the Glazer family Arthur in Tampa, Arthur Blank in Atlanta, Stephen Ross in Miami, Robert Kraft, a friend of mine. I've known him for many years. He's in New England. And of course, Dave Tepper with the Carolina Panthers. So when people talk about the influence that some Jewish folks may have as it pertains to the world of sports or to the, to the world of Hollywood, how do you say those things without being offensive to the Jewish community.
2: They're also white people, they're also men, they're also American. I mean, I don't know how many, uh, I don't know what the non-Jewish percentage is. I mean, I I don't know the census of people running agencies in Hollywood or owning NFL teams or whatever, but that there are a lot of Jews, that there are a particular number of Jews in an area doesn't mean it's a conspiracy. Correct. Just like that there may be a number of, um, you know, say, Black people playing in the NFL doesn't mean there's some
0: conspiracy. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just don't see it like that. I don't at all. Well, just a couple of questions, because first of all, thank you so much for the time that you've given me already. I'm really, really appreciative of it. Uh, So I'll just ask you a couple of more questions and then I'll let you go. We've got, Okay, we've already talked about Dave Chappelle. We've already talked about uh, Kyrie Irving. We discussed... Kanye a bit but I think it's safe to say that your thoughts might be a bit different towards Kanye than it is towards Kyrie or Dave Chappelle am I right in asserting that yeah I think you are I mean I think
2: look Kyrie tweeted out a movie that it's not even clear whether he watched it or not and then he was defensive when asked about it Dave Chappelle did a skit did a monologue that again I think was more punch than punchline but he's got history going after everybody what Kanye did, again, I mean, he has a history of saying things or doing things that I think are indisputably racist. Now, although when one group attacks from within that group, right, as we were saying a minute ago, his comments about slavery, his White Lives Matter t-shirt, like, go figure. Um, but when he went after the Jewish community, after uh, you know, he said he was going to go, quote, death con three. Yeah. That's like, why I, I, I
0: thought he started off because he was too confrontational. He set the stage by letting you know he was going to be confrontational with that. And that was a big problem.
2: Yeah. And so when Jews, when Jewish people and Jewish institutions have a history of being, you know, killed for being Jewish, saying you're going to go death con three is uh, I don't know exactly what it means, but I don't think it's very nice. Uh, and then when he repeated this, he made more claims Right. He made them on the Chris Cromo show and the Piers Morgan show and a bunch of shows after that. And then used his when he was on Twitter, kept tweeting out things that were very incendiary. And when, again, white supremacists were saying Kanye was right about the Jews, you didn't hear him say a word. So there's a pattern there, Stephen, which I think is really different than Kyrie or even Chappelle or so many other people. So that's something I think we've got to, like with everything, Stephen. you've got to look at things in context. Now, does that mean that I would f- never accept, you know, if, if Kanye had a change of heart and demonstrated some accountability? I think my job as ahead of ADL mm-hmm. is to demonstrate a degree of grace and to, to show a capacity for forgiveness. Now, I'm going to judge him not by what he says, but by what he does and I'm gonna to try to assess how authentic and genuine he is. But if he's ready for a process of healing, then we're ready to engage with
0: him. I think that's what we've got to do. Mm-hmm. But when you say a process of healing, that means different things to different people. Sure. So as the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, that process of healing, what exactly should that entail in your eyes?
2: Number one, I think it starts with conversation like meeting people as equals, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, person-to-person. Number two, I think it then requires a degree of education and listening with open mind, not with a prejudgment, oh, Jews ran the slave trade. They didn't. But being willing to say, yeah, there were some Jews who participated in it, which actually turns out historically is a fraction of the massive amount of other people who are involved in it. Mm -hmm. So I got to acknowledge that, and he's got to acknowledge that just by means of example um and like learning about we were just talking earlier about the the amazing 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 work that our forebearers did fighting for civil rights blacks and jews together i mean i think someone like me and arguably steven someone like you we stand on their shoulders today so i think it starts with conversation it then moves to education and then ultimately i think it's about engagement it's about not a one-off thing but finding ways to work together and build together.
0: Mm -hmm. Again, not not moving backwards, but rather moving forwards. Last question to you, Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, right here on No Mercy with Stephen A. Smith. You started off this interview making an impassioned argument about the terrifying path that America finds itself on today. So happens you got a book out. That's true. It could happen here. That is the title. The last word, I think that that title of that book, what the book is about, I think speaks to the entire conversation that we have had over the last near hour or so. And yeah. your concerns and, and how they've been heightened because of what has been transpiring, specifically over the last several years. Speak to that and tell the world what you want us all to know through this book. It could happen here. Well, I
2: wrote by you. book. I wrote the book after, started working on it after the, the anti-Semitic attack in Pittsburgh, which was the most violent anti-Jewish act mm-hmm. in American history. Eleven people were killed to try to work through what I was seeing as the CEO of the ADL. And, you know, Stephen, I came to this job. You were saying I spent a little bit of time in politics, spent a lot of time in business. I had no nonprofit experience before coming to ADL. I wasn't an expert in these issues, but what I've seen in recent years is terrifying. And, you know, I'm the grandson of a Holocaust survivor from Germany, and when he was a young man, Germany was, as, he's, as he told me when he was still alive, my grandfather, an amazing place for Jews, until one day it regarded him as an enemy of the state, destroyed everything he ever loved. M- they murdered almost his entire family and network of friends and forced him to come to this country as a refugee. My grandfather never would have guessed that one day he'd have grandchildren born in America, me and my brother and my cousins. I'm um, The husband of a Jewish woman from Iran. And she and her family, Iran was the only country they ever knew. And it was a great place for Jews and all people until the Islamic uh, revolution and the kind of fascism of Khomeini. And then that country destroyed everything they ever loved. And because they were Jews, you know, forced them to flee as refugees and come to this country. My father-in-law never would have guessed that one day his grandchildren, My boys, the ones wearing the Kyrie jersey with Kanye posters on their wall, or they used to, wearing their Yeezys, that one day they would be born in America. My grandfather always thought his kids' grandchildren would be born in Germany. My father-in-law thought his grandchildren would be born in Iran. And you know what? The lesson for us, Stephen, the lesson for me, is I can't take for granted that my grandchildren will be born in this country unless we fight for what we have. Because this can go away like that. Like that. I mean, the reality is that our democracy is far more fragile than we appreciate. It's a system of, of, of laws, but they're bound together by, by norms and values. And we've seen how those have been battered in recent years. Now, with the recent midterm elections, we're encouraging. I think yeah, most of the election up, deniers yeah. lost. But like democracy, you know, to put it in a, in a sports metaphor, democracy is not a spectator
0: sport. You got to be on the field ready to play. Did you give Obama that line when well, he gave that line in 2016 uh, at the Democratic National Event- Convention? Were well, you the one that gave Barack Obama that line? It's not I a didn't. spectator what you got to be in it. Was that I, you? I, I, I
2: didn't. I didn't. Don't <laughs> give me the credit. He's got way better speech writers I was right. than me. Right. But it's true. Like, you got to get on the field and be ready to play ball, whether you're a young person or an old person, whether you're black or white, Jewish or Christian, whatever you may be. And that's, perf- that's super germane to why I wrote this book, because I wrote this book because I've had a wake-up call. We all need the wake-up call,
0: mm-hmm. and we all need to be ready to get on the field and play. Yeah. Every one of us. Well, listen, I appreciate your time, man, and I thank you so much. The only thing, if I may, uh, that I would say to you is that in the process of feeling this insatiable need to educate folks because we all need to be educated. Just understand that in a lot in a lot more situations than people realize, we really, really don't know.
1: You're we right. really,
0: really don't know. And when you come at folks with you don't know, so let me tell you, that's entirely different than saying you should be condemned for what you've said or done. Now in some cases, of course it's appropriate. You <laughs> said what you just articulated. Yeah. But in yeah. some cases, what you don't know you don't know until somebody mm. tells you. Mm-hmm.
2: Look, Stephen, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Yeah. I learned as a result of it. I appreciate your kind of feedback. And like, I'll i know I'll be the first to tell you, I don't always get it right. But I think I'm on my own process of kind of learning. Yeah. And all of us would be, whether we're NFL or sorry NBA superstars or, you know, big entertainers, comedians, NGO executives, mm-hmm. you know, sports personalities like yourself, all of us. A little bit of humility I think goes a long way. And uh, I try to live by that kind of ethos. And so I've learned today and I thank you for giving me your time.
0: Man, thank you so much. I know I've learned something as well and I appreciate the conversation and I'm always here for you. I'm happy to talk to you anytime you need me to. Thank you so much.
2: What's the deal. Be good. You too.
1: Bye bye. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock like my lifeline until i flatline, i push it to the red line gonna stop me high? Who gon stop me high?
0: that was a fruitful conversation to say the least thanks again to the ceo jonathan greenblatt of the anti defamation league um you can't say you didn't learn after a conversation like that more importantly you can't say you don't know if you were truly truly listening I'm not going to sit up here and spend an exorbitant amount of time, really not much time at all, because I think the way we ended that conversation is the appropriate way to end it. Jonathan Greenblatt talked about us coming together, talked about more conversations needing to be had, getting to know one another, being receptive to what other people have to say, and enlightening our society. Prioritizing peace and love more so than hate and violence. That's what he's talking about. That's what his fears. How many times did he snap his finger and talked about our democracy, our freedoms, our liberties? It could be going like that. Clearly, it's a real fear he has. Clearly, he ain't making it up. You heard the facts he spewed. You heard about how things have gotten worse over the last six years in terms of hate crime in America. He brought up white nationalism and how some of those views have really infiltrated a lot of the rhetoric of hate that we see spewed over social media and beyond. He's concerned. And you know what? So should the rest of us, particularly When we see what's transpiring, whether it's with the 45th president running for the presidency again, whether it's Elon Musk and Twitter, whether it's violence or potential violence being nullified and negated by the FBI that was aimed at synagogues in the Jewish community. It's a concern. And you know something? It ain't a Jewish concern. It's a human concern. Humanity is regressing. Our level of sensitivity to our fellow men and women is regressing. In order to do something about that, it's not up to the Jewish community. It's not up to the black community. It's not up to the white community. It's up to all of us together. Essentially, that's what Jonathan Greenblatt was saying. Not only do I not disagree with him, Actually, I actually have to take a moment to thank him just for the conversation. That is where it all starts, after all, with conversation. Thank you, as always, for your time. Thank you for listening to No Mercy with Stephen A. Smith, coming at you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Deeply appreciate you. Wouldn't be a me without you. I know that. And as I think I've shown yet again, regardless of my sports background, you don't have to know sports to No Mercy. If ever there was a time when that saying was appropriate, it certainly is now immediately following that conversation. Until next time, everybody. Peace and love. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts. Guess who's got a memoir coming out, ladies and gentlemen? Yours truly, Stephen A. Smith. It's entitled Straight Shooter, and it's available right now for pre-order. I have signed these books, just so you know. So you can visit straightshooterbook.com to order your autographed copy today. In the book, I talk about my life before ESPN, growing up in Hollis, Queens, New York, how sports proved to be my salvation. I talk about some of the mistakes I've made in my life and my impact on the world of sports. The book is called Straight Shooter, and it's written to help motivate you to overcome setbacks that maybe prevent you from reaching your dreams. So go right now and order your autographed copy of my memoir, straightshooterbook.com. Don't wait. It's entitled Straight Shooter. Check it out. Don't miss it.